Let me invite you today to open your Bible and to turn to Psalm 132. Psalm 132. And we're taking a little bit of a detour this afternoon from our regular series in the book of Luke. Uh, we're going to look at one of the Psalms of Ascents. That's Ascents as in walking up. These are Psalms that Jewish pilgrims would use as they would make uh, their annual pilgrimage up to uh, the city of Jerusalem for the feast of Passover and harvest and ingathering. There are 15 of these Psalms in all. They start in Psalm 120. They go through Psalm 134. Most of them are very short. I think they average something like six verses in all. So they're the kind of thing that would be very easy to memorize and you could uh, take with you in your heart and uh, sing as everyone processed up to the gates of Jerusalem. And they were, they were the sort of thing that were very celebrative uh, in nature, the kind of thing that God's people would use to prepare their hearts as they went up to worship. Um, this is one that is especially celebrative. I think it's a fitting psalm for a day like today, a day when many of us are thinking about uh, the Lord's incarnation, uh, Jesus Christ taking on flesh and blood and stepping into this world. It's also the last Lord's Day, the last Sabbath of the year. And so many of us are also thinking ahead about what the new year holds for us, thinking about spiritual ambitions, evaluating our priorities, making fresh resolves. If you're not, I would encourage you to do that. It's an opportune time for that. You find all of that here in Psalm 132. It's a prayer for blessing. It's a prayer for the blessing of God to be upon the people of God, to be upon the dwelling place of God. You see uh, the psalmist pleading that God would act on behalf of his people by showing power by showing his glory for the sake of his servant, David. And then you see the Lord's answer to that prayer that one of David's sons is indeed going to occupy Zion's throne forever and ever. And the psalm basically divides into two parts like that, two halves. In verses one to 10, first you have those holy pleas, P-L-E-A-S, holy please, holy requests, that God would be at the very center of his people's lives, their identity, their worship. And then verses 11 to 18, you have God's answer that he will grant that request, but not just that. He's going to grant the request and he is going to do exceedingly above all that they can ask or imagine. He's going to do so much more than they even request of him by giving his anointed one, the Messiah, to his people forever to reign as the king of their salvation, the one who makes his saints to shout for joy. So as I read this psalm, I want you to, to listen for uh, the requests that are made in the first half, and then listen for the way the answer in the second half parallels those requests, those, those petitions. So with God's help, open your hearts, incline your ears to the reading of God's word from Psalm 132. Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my, house, enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Joar. 
Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies... I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. We don't know who composed this psalm. It could have been composed by Solomon at the dedication of the temple. It could have been written sometime after that. What is clear when we read this is that it's a psalm that was appropriated by God's people in successive generations, one after another, as they went up to worship the Lord. You see in verses one to five, first of all, what the psalmist brings to the Lord's remembrance. The psalmist longs to see the hand of God rest upon his people and to do so in a mighty way that the power of God would be so palpably present among the people of God as they worship. And so he makes this appeal to him. But before he gets to the appeal, before he begins to make his request, he, he gives some grounds here for the request that he gives. He does something that might sound a little bit surprising, a little bit unusual to us. He says, remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships that he endured. And then he goes on to, to outline just what he means by those particular kinds of hardships, or your Bible might read afflictions that David endured. Now we know that King David endured many afflictions in his life. He went through all kinds of trials and sufferings, um, particularly at the hands of Saul. That is not what is in view here. This is the self-imposed afflictions or hardships that he endured uh, as he sought to find and prepare this dwelling place for the Lord. Verses two to five show that particularly. It talks about how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, you have to get to verse eight before you discover the real crux of David's concern to see that what is the real heartbeat of his concern is to see the Ark of the Covenant established forever in Jerusalem. He wants to see God have a dwelling place, a permanent place where the place of his presence would abide forever at the center of God's people. And if you know the background here, this is a time uh, in redemptive history where uh, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant doesn't have that. It's in a, 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 a more temporary dwelling place and David wants it to have a permanent home, a proper sort of, of temple. And so there were all of these self-imposed afflictions and hardships that he endured to that end. First Chronicles 22 and verse 14 talks about that. David says, with great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord. Uh, David was a man after God's heart, the Bible tells us. And you could see that in the way that he ordered his life 
with great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord. You could look at this man's life and you knew what his priorities were. You knew what his cares were for. He was a man after God's heart. He had it in his heart to build the Lord a house. And this was such a burning passion in his life that he made a vow. He vowed to the Lord to see this through uh, to completion. If you know the history there, you might find yourself smiling a little bit. David swore to the Lord he wouldn't sleep until he brought it to pass. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 tells us why this was the case. He said that he found it intolerable that he, David, should be living in a house of cedar while the Lord, the Lord of glory, would dwell in this tent. And, and the, the whole proposition, this disparity seemed terribly unfitting to David. This seemed totally backwards, totally upside down. And so it was on account of this that David's passions uh, began to be stirred with, within him. And our text tells us it was his ambition to find a place for the Lord. And he, he, he's not using that word the way we sometimes talk about finding a place for something. Hey, can you find a place for this? Where are we going to put this? No, David wants to see the Lord find, ha, have a, a place, a, a, per, to, to, a permanent dwelling place among the people of God. Now, David knew that the presence of God was everywhere. Uh, David is also the one that wrote Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And he, he says, if I go to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, behold, you are there in your right hand upholds me. David understood the doctrine of God's omnipresence. He, under, he understood that. And the truths he speaks about in Psalm 139 are the sort of thing that puts steel in the, the spine of God's saints to know that whatever straits we find ourselves in as the Lord's people, we'll never find ourselves in some uh, pocket of the universe where God's presence isn't there. We'll always find him there available as we cry out to him. Psalm 132, though, is not talking about God's omnipresence. David here is talking about God's special presence, that special way that God makes himself known among his covenant people in a way that he doesn't do elsewhere. This is true for us as well as the new covenant people of God. The Bible says that we are the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit makes his home within us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, Paul talks there about uh, Lord's Day worship on days just like this when the people of God join their hearts together to worship the Lord, and he describes being assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus. We come together, and God's power is with us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The, the temple of the Old Testament was the shadow of that fulfillment we know today. Well, it was David's strong desire to see the place of God's holy habitation, the Ark of the Covenant, at the center of Israel's life and worship. This is not just about a change of scenery. This is about seeing God at the center of everything that they are doing, taking first priority, the covenant-keeping God exalted as head over all. And David endured great hardship because of it. God was his, his treasure and his delight, and that gave way to this all-consuming passion to see God at the center of it all. 
He couldn't sleep because of it. He vowed he wouldn't sleep. Young children, maybe some of you weren't able to sleep last night. Uh, Was there anything that kept you awake, perhaps? David couldn't sleep. He was restless because of the things of God. He was restless because of his yearnings for the presence of God, his love for the Lord. He was relentless in his commitment to the work of God. He was devoted sacrificially to God, wholly committed to the purposes of God. Well, brothers and sisters, this isn't just for David. This is what following God looks like. This is what following God looks like for all the people of God. This is what devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ entails. Dedication to the work of God is costly. Uh, Jesus said, if any, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, the cost of discipleship is such that it can't be fit neatly into the corners of your life. It's all-consuming. It's all-consuming. It is where we get our very identity as the people of God, as his children. Now, I alluded alluded to it a minute ago. David did not get the opportunity to build a house for the Lord. He made a vow and he spoke of what he did not know. But the Lord honored his, uh, his request. He honored the spirit of David's request, even if David got the details wrong. And it's this ambition that the psalmist is talking about and that all of God's people, like ourselves, who take up these words afterwards uh, are asking God to remember. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. Remember, O Lord, not that God forgets. When we pray this way, what are we asking? What we we are really saying is, God, would you act in accordance with your word? Would you act on the basis of this? This is what happened in the past in your covenant faithfulness. Now, as we look at the future and we bow our knee, as we cast ourselves in utter dependence upon you, would you remember, O Lord? Here, the logic runs like this. Would you look upon David's commitment and would you honor him, your anointed king, by fulfilling the desire of our heart. Now, what is the desire of their heart? What is the cry of the people's hearts? Well, you see their resolve in verses six and seven. Behold, we heard of it, and Ephrathah we found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And you see how it moves now to plural pronouns. Now it becomes absolutely clear, this is the, the plea of the, the whole congregation. This is their decided commitment. Let us worship at his footstool. They reference here a sad time in Israel's history when the Ark of the Covenant had been captured had been captured by the Philistines. You remember how the Philistines had gotten a hold of the Ark of the Covenant and they set it up in the temple of Dagon. They thought to themselves, well, one God's good, two God's is all the better. So let's give this a shot. And so they bring uh, the Ark of the Covenant and they set it up next to Dagon. And they get up the next morning and lo and behold, Dagon, the statue, is fallen face down inside that pagan temple. And they scratch their, their, their heads and think, huh, interesting. They prop him back up. The next morning, same thing happens. And it takes them a while, but eventually they realize the God of Israel is not like our God. He is not someone to be trifled with. He has no rivals. No one stands alongside Yahweh, 
the covenant-keeping God. Well, for 20 years, even after the Ark of the Covenant was returned, it lived in obscurity in the house of Abinadab uh, in Kiriath-Jerim. That's probably what the fields of Joar is uh, referencing. Joar means something like wooded, and that's uh, the, the terrain of Kiriath-Jerim. The, f- the fact that the ark had essentially been, been lost was emblematic of Israel's spiritual state during these years. God, as it were, had been sidelined. He had been pushed off to the side of their life and of their worship. They had, they had essentially forgotten about the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle, the the thing that most symbolized the presence and the glory of God. It had been forgotten. Well, after a time, eventually the Lord brings his people to repentance. They turn back to him. They turn away from their, their foreign gods and their idolatrous desires. They, they, they repent of the way they regarded his presence or uh, the lack of his presence in their midst. And they cry out to God. The people uh, have Samuel who is raised up for them. Uh, he offers, the, offers a, a a burnt offering, a a sacrificial lamb. Uh, The people cry out to the Lord and uh, that is where the the Ebenezer stone is raised up. And Samuel says, thus far the Lord has helped us. He has been our help. Well, it's this memory now that's running in the background of these pilgrim worshipers uh, that uh, now they make their resolve just as these ancestors of theirs had done before them, and they now renew their commitment. So it's appropriate that we at times renew our commitment and our dedication to the Lord, that that we take special seasons to examine our spiritual state and to, to seek the face of God, Uh, to commit ourselves to his purposes, to turn away from that which we need to turn away from in view of his mercy and grace and ask for his help to seek him. They renew their commitment to God. The ark is discovered. What happens? They all say, let us go to his dwelling. Let us worship at his footstool. Everywhere, uh, the people of God are echoing this same refrain. Now, I want you to think with me here about this, this couplet. Let us go to his dwelling. Let us worship at his footstool. That couplet, that little piece of poetry captures the paradox of the presence of God dwelling on earth. If I were to use a little bit of archaic language with you and, and say, I'm going to go to your dwelling place today, you know what I meant, and I would be going to the place where you live. You step inside the door of your home and you shut the door behind you, and we can speak in those terms of the way that God made his presence known among his people Israel Let us go to his dwelling. But we have to also join to that. Let us worship at his footstool. And that expression makes it clear that God didn't dwell inside the box that was the Ark of the Covenant. It was not as if God could somehow be contained within that that wooden box. Solomon himself acknowledges this at the, the dedication of the temple. He says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? 
The Ark of the Covenant was just a simple little wooden box. The Lord was enthroned above it, above the mercy seat, that place where the blood would be sprinkled each year on the day of atonement when the sacrificial lamb would be given. So we're, we're reaching here. We're reaching for human language that can describe the glory of God dwelling among men. And yet, at the same time, we, we, we see these pilgrim worshipers as they are ascending the hill, the, the hearts of God's people are filled with this longing to be there, to be near to the place where God uh, condescended to dwell, where he made himself known. It's like a really ancient version of the hymn. We sometimes sing, nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee. They want to be with God. They want to be close to the place of his presence. They long for him. If you look at verse eight, you see them reenacting this ancient procession. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. That's the the customary formula that was used. Whenever the the ark was sent out, these words would be spoken in Numbers 10 and verse 35. It says that whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. It's what uh, Solomon prayed when the ark uh, was brought into the Holy of Holies. Well, Psalm 132 is written in a way that allows all of God's people to enter into that experience, uh, to take up those words and to relive it, to experience what happened then with the same kind of enthusiasm and joy. Now, I said there are two big ideas and this psalm, there's those holy requests. We've seen already the people uh, calling to God's remembrance, David's vow. We've seen their resolve to worship. We've seen them uh, reenact uh, this procession. Now, it's really not until we get to verses eight to 10 that we see the actual content of their petition. And brothers and sisters, this is a great challenge for us. Uh, This is a great encouragement to us as God's people, as we think about how to pray, as we think about how to pray for the church, how to orient our requests. There are basically four petitions here and they each have application for us. Verse eight, the people pray for the person, presence, and power of God to be at the center of their lives. They pray for the person, power, and presence of God to be at the center of their lives. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. This is about God taking first priority, first place in his people's lives. It's about him being established forever in their midst, immovably established. They talk about the ark of your might. That's a picture of of victory. It's a picture of power over our enemies, the covenant-keeping God going before them, staying with them, and then finally being established with them forever, granting the, the, the triumphant power that he brings wherever he goes to his people. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Church, if the Lord is to be present among his people, those who serve him must be holy. If God is going to be present with us as the body of Christ, if we are going to know his working, his spirit moving among us, those who serve him must be holy. It is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the very same uh, pivot, if you will, that Paul uses when he is uh, speaking in 2 Corinthians. He talks about the saving work of Christ. He says in so many words, has Christ come to dwell in your heart by faith? Have you been saved? 
Have you been rescued from your sin? Have you believed on Jesus? If that is true, then what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You hear the same language ringing out in new covenant terms? Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing and then I will welcome you. I will welcome you. You see what God is saying. There will be sweet communion between the Father and his people. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the dynamic. Now, today, church, the the temple is not made out of physical bricks. We're not using physical stones to build the temple of God. The Bible says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And then number three, join to that and let your saints shout with joy. Do you ever pray that way? You ever pray, God, let your people shout with joy. Let us know the victory of your presence. God, let your holy ones know the joy of you being with us. And if you just hold those two things up next to each other, notice that uh, contrary to popular opinion, righteousness and joy go hand in hand. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints be, be, uh, shout with joy. Righteousness and joy go together. They belong together. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. That's the dynamic. Now, brothers and sisters, do we have these longings? Is this our desire as a church? Is the people of God... Maybe, may we be challenged in our prayers in the year ahead to pray uh, this kind of way. Number four, verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. He's saying, let the face of your anointed king turn toward us, shine upon us as your people. If the king... If God's anointed one was to turn his face away from his people, that would be the greatest tragedy that the people of God could ever know. It would be a sign of great displeasure for the anointed one to turn away his face. It would be a sign of judgment over the people of God. Nothing less than judgment. Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice that as these pilgrims are praying, as they are seeking the face of God, they are doing so on the basis of something outside of themselves. And this is, again, very instructive. They petition Yahweh on the basis of God's relationship with David for the sake of your servant, David. We saw the same thing in verse one. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. And when you bow your heart before the Lord, when you pray and, and you, 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 you seek the, the face of God, you're, you're desperate to see him work on your behalf. Do you ever present arguments? Do you ever bring bases to him upon which you rest your prayers. Church, we have have one greater than David, great David's greater son. He is the one by whom we come to the Father. He is the one by whom we are able in the first place to lift up our voices and to pray. If that was not the case, all of this would be vain. And yet we have him. We can come through him, the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. 
And so we pray for the sake of your anointed one. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. It's on the basis of his merit, uh, his glory, his promises, the promises given to and fulfilled in him that we are able to pray knowing that we will be heard. We can say, remember, O Lord, in Jesus' favor, for the sake of your servant Jesus, hear our prayer as we come to you. He has given us access. He has given us access to the Father. No one else can do that for you. No other saint No other mediator, Mary, cannot do that for you. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can give you access to the Father. But when we come through him, we have great access. We have great privilege, great freedom, great liberty to be able to lift up our petitions, to make the cries of our heart known before him with full confidence he will hear us. Now, let's look at the Lord's response. Verses 1 to 10 are the people's prayer. Verses 11 to 18 are God's response. We've heard David's oath, how he swore to the Lord. Now look at verse 11. Yahweh swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of your sons of your body, one of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. Do you see the parallel? David swore an oath to the Lord. The Lord swore to David an oath, and not just that, but a sure oath. And this is the hinge point of the whole psalm. David proposes to build Yahweh a house. The Lord in return promises to build David a house. And again, this takes us back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, you're welcome to turn there if, you, if you'd like. I'm going to read a passage from there. This is a very important passage in redemptive history. This is where David makes that remark. See, I dwell in a house of cedar, and the Lord dwells in this tent. And Nathan the prophet, in, in, a, in a way that similarly runs parallel to David's youthful exuberance, I suppose, says, go, the Lord is with you. See, neither of them were quite right. And God was very gracious though. Incredibly, God says this to to David. This is starting in the middle of verse nine. He says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God swore a sure oath from which he will not turn back. Now, God didn't need to swear an oath. It is impossible for God to lie. He did not need to bind his word with an oath, but he did it anyway. He stooped to our level, as it were, as if to say, you can be absolutely sure that this will come to pass because I have said it and I am binding myself 
to my word. He did it for the sake of his people. You can read Hebrews chapter six for a New Testament parallel of the very same thing to see that God, having made a promise to his people, and it says they're desiring to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it incredible to hear those words coming from God to hear that God desired to show more convincingly to his people? He desired that, that we would be convinced of the veracity, the truthfulness, the believability of his word, and that we would put all of our faith in it, that we would be saved of our sins, reconciled to him, have a home forever in that new Jerusalem, with the presence of God. He stoops. Incredible lengths he goes to give us helps in the weakness of our faith. Look at me, look at my word, see how I've guaranteed it. Now believe, trust me. And what does God swear here? He says, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now you see the kind of house varies as well here. David had it in his house to build Yahweh, a temple. God purposed in his heart to establish for David a dynasty, an everlasting kingdom. As is often the case, our, our vision falls far short of the Lord's, of the Lord's purposes in our lives. God's purposes for our lives are always infinitely greater than, than our own. Now, we, we have to acknowledge the, the terrible condition that accompanies this. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. We know that with very few exceptions, um, most of the kings that sat on David's throne could not be uh, characterized by these words. They uh, could not be described as covenant keepers. They were covenant breakers. They were law breakers. They were uh, idolatrous, they were wicked at heart. They did not love the Lord their God. David started out and then you had Solomon and Solomon did quite well in many respects and then in many respects not so well. His wives turned his heart away uh, from the Lord and then um, things just deteriorate, don't they? The kingdom is divided with Rehoboam and Jeroboam and things go from bad to worse as, as the generations go on and on. What then is our hope? It's the Lord's sworn oath. It's his sure word, that from which he will not turn back, the indefatigable word of God. Do you see the principle, people? You can trust God's word. God did not make a mistake when he uttered the vow that he did. He didn't somehow fail to see the future. He didn't miscalculate the trajectory that David's offspring were going to take down the road. The tension is only resolved when we get to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the answer 
He is the answer. The promise is real. One of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. But so are the conditions. The conditions are also real. Only the perfectly, sinlessly, spotlessly obedient son will occupy the throne of David forever. Where do we find that one? Only in Christ. Jesus is the promised fulfillment. He came to do everything that David and David's offspring and all of us have failed to do by fulfilling the law perfectly, obeying God in everything. He kept the covenant. He kept the testimonies given to him, praise be, to God, And you see the word of, of reassurance that is granted to his people here toward the end, verses 13 to 18. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Again, you see God's own desire. He's desired it for his dwelling place. David, it's not just you. This is a, a stunning pronouncement if you think about the implications of those words that God desires to to dwell in Zion. What do you discover in Zion? What will you find there? You'll find sinners. You'll find needy sinners, those in need of redemption. So how can a holy God dwell with sinful men? Well, you see it in the the grace of God that follows in this passage, the, the provisions he supplies, the satisfaction he gives, the salvation he shows, the joy that is known. And you see where the emphasis lies in each one of these expressions. I will dwell, I will bless, I will satisfy, I will clothe, I will make the force of which is designed to bring reassurance to every one of your hearts who believes on him. This will be accomplished. You heard it in the, in the scripture that was read earlier today. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It will be done. It will be accomplished. And this all emphasizes that all of the glory belongs singularly to him. He is the one who has done it. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. Strange choice of words to our ears, but very common in those days. A horn is a picture of power and strength and victory in in the, the animal world. The idea of it sprouting uh, suggests that the kingdom of Christ is something that is going to expand and it is going to continue to grow under the exercise of his reign. If you remember, when Zechariah's tongue was loosed, this is the very first thing that comes to his mind under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. God was true to his word. He brought it to pass. The same is true with a lamp for my anointed. Zechariah said Christ came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. God who said, let light shine into darkness has shown in our hearts, why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of whom? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Messiah King. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Some are clothed with salvation, others are clothed with shame. On the last day, when Christ returns, 
when he comes again, we will all either be wrapped in robes of righteousness or clothed with shame. All of our pride, all of our selfish, selfish interests, all of our sin exposed will either be numbered among his, his glorious saints dwelling forever with the Lord in the new Jerusalem or forever shamed as the vanquished foes of the almighty king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, where do you stand today? Where do you stand? Let's turn our hearts to the Lord and to the one with whom we have to do. Father, we bow our hearts before you, the eternal one, almighty king, the only wise God. Lord, you are the one who rules now over heaven and earth. And Lord, as we have contemplated your word this day, we find ourselves astonished that you would be so gracious as to send your only begotten son to save rebel sinners, to conquer our hearts by your mercy and love, and that you would do it knowing the the incredible price that would have to be paid, that the Son of God would suffer and pay the price crucified between two thieves, a crown of thorns mockingly placed upon his brow. And God, we thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his willing obedience every day, every moment of his life. Lord, I thank you that he trusted you, that he walked in obedience to you to the very last day. Lord, that when he breathed his last, he was found faithful. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Thank you, God, that today he reigns. Thank you for the good news that he has conquered sin and death and hell and the grave. What a hope and encouragement that is to us today. Lord, what peace we find knowing that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That today he does reign in the highest place. I praise you, O God, for the strong hope we find in the finished work of your son. Lord, as we make our our own pilgrimage, not to an earthly city, but to a heavenly one, the new Jerusalem, God, would you work in us? Would you strengthen us? Bring us from faith to faith according to your grace. Until that day, Lord, our Our desire is that our hearts would be established in the good news of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.